for the past several weeks, our house has been filled with the sound of laughter from our youngest son, Noah. You just hear him laughing all throughout the house. And that's because uh, my youngest son just got introduced to Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, yes, anyone else love Calvin and Hobbes? Yes. Well, you could hear him laughing all throughout the house at random points as he's reading the book. In fact, just the other day, after being consumed by one of Bill Watterson's books, Noah walked down the stairs and he declared, hey, everybody, I want to let you know, I'm now a Calvinist. <laughs> and I could not be more proud of my son in that moment. What a good, good sir. But you know, one thing about Calvin, those of you that are familiar with the comic strips, is you know that Calvin, he's, he's terrified about the monsters under his bed, isn't he? In fact, even one of the books is called Something Under the Bed is Drooling. And one of the major themes in that book is his fear of the night and his fear of the monsters that are under his bed. And really, can you, can you blame him? Because who here at least some point in your life has not been afraid of the dark or what might be under the bed, right? I know there have been moments in my life when that's been the case. And perhaps some of you still do have maybe a fear like that. Or if, if not a fear of the dark or the idea that there could be something under the bed, maybe you have another fear. Maybe there's something else that you're afraid of. In fact, you don't even have to, ask, you don't have to say that loud, but let me ask you, what would you say is that one thing that maybe weighs heavy on your heart, that, that one thing that you are indeed afraid of? What is it that you fear? Sickness? Fear of failure, maybe? Maybe losing your reputation? Maybe COVID-19? Perhaps you fear something harmful will happen to one of your children? Maybe you fear losing your home or your job or a loved one. I know you have a fear. We all do. We all have fears. What is it that you fear? Actually, here's an even better question. What do you do when you are afraid? How do you cope? How do you sleep at night when the concerns and fears of this world weigh heavy upon your heart? What do you do when you are afraid or you're experiencing a fearful circumstance? Faith, here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is, that's simply this. What are we to do when we are afraid, what we are to do, what are we to do when we find ourselves in a terrifying or unsettling circumstance? How should we respond? What should our course of action be? Well, I believe our passage this morning shares with us some good counsel in that regard. You see, this morning, 
our study of 1 Samuel, it leads us to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And in 1 Samuel 21, our text reveals something about David that is not mentioned anywhere else in the books of First and Second Samuel. In order as we read and we learn about David in this text, we learn that David was afraid. In 1 Samuel 2.12, that is the only place in the two books of First and Second Samuel that says that David was afraid. And think of all the things we've learned about David thus far that he could have been afraid of. Think about chapter 17. Who did David fight? Didn't say he was afraid then. Now, he might have been, but the text doesn't say. But in our text this morning, 1 Samuel 21, it specifically says that David was afraid. And you know what David did in 1 Samuel 21 when he was afraid? He wrote Psalm 56. And in that chapter, in Psalm 56, we learn from David, we receive counsel as to what we are to do when we are afraid. So what I want to do this morning is I first want to look at 1 Samuel 21, verses 7 through 15, and then we're going to flip over to Psalm 56 to receive counsel on how we are to respond to fearful circumstances. So if you haven't already, Turn with me first to 1 Samuel 21. When we last left David, he was speaking to the priest Ahimelech, asking for some food for him and his men. And the priest provided to him the bread of presence. And last week we looked at how Jesus understood that text in Matthew 12, and how he applied it to speak to the legalism that can often creep into our hearts. And how the way to eradicate legalism from our hearts is to exalt in the Lord and to delight in Him. Well, now we're going to pick things up beginning in verse 7. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. So we read this. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, it kind of seems kind of random that the author just drops this guy's name in here, but actually he's going to factor in quite significantly in the chapters to come. Now look at verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, What have you here? Excuse me. Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind an ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. So, so David asked the guy, I need some weapons. He's like, the only weapon I have is the sword of Goliath. The very sword, David, you used to lop off the head of Goliath. Now I want you to notice where David goes next. This is an indication of just how desperate 
and concerned he was trying to flee from Saul. David is so concerned about Saul and how he's wanting to kill him that notice where David goes next. Look at the following verse. Verse 10 says this, And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. You know what Gath is? That's Goliath's hometown. So David, think of how great he must understand the threat of Saul to be, that he's willing to take the sword of Goliath into Goliath's hometown to escape Saul. And then notice their response. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was what? Much afraid. Much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he's not only fearful of Saul, he's also fearful of the king of Gath. So David, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. In their hands means that he was seized. He was held captive by them. And he made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why have you then brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And the obvious answer is no. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Okay, this is arguably the lowest point in David's life. King Saul, who used to be his friend, now wants him dead. And as a result, think of all that David has lost thus far. He's lost his home. He's lost his wife. He's lost his friends. But that's not all that's troubling David. Notice also, David's legacy is taking a beating here, isn't it? Think of how much we value a good reputation. Think of how much we value a good name. Well, think of David's good name. The good reputation he earned as the mighty warrior is being soiled right now. As as he's resigning himself to act like a madman. You see, Faith, David experienced many of the things that we just worry about. He lost his job, his reputation, his home. His boss is pretty ticked off at him, throwing spears at him, right? If that hasn't happened to you at work, give thanks, right? (laughs) The point is, David knew fear. So what are we to do when we are afraid? Well, David teaches us. Let's flip over to Psalm 56. You can see there under the heading of the psalm, It says that when the Philistines seized him in Gath, this is exactly what we just read. So he wrote this when the Philistines seized him at Gath, which means he did not write this after this episode, but during it. Okay? 
Read this. Beginning verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long and attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. For what can flesh do to me? Well, he tells us what they can do to them. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. Now notice David's understanding of the character of God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Amen and amen. Faith, what are we to do when we are afraid? What are we to do when our hearts are seized with fear? David answers that question with this counsel, and that is this. He encourages us to replace your fear with trust in the Lord and trust in God. Whatever is on your heart right now, friend, whatever it is you are fearful of or making you anxious, God, through his word, this inspired word, is counseling you to replace the fear with something and that is trust in God. This, I want to argue, is the main idea of this text. But what I want to do this morning is I just don't want to leave this in some kind of nebulous, ethereal idea, statement. We can download a lot of our own thoughts into what it means to trust in God and what that looks like. And what I want to do is from Psalm 56, show you practically what it means to do this task of replacing my fear with trusting God and what it actually means to trust God. And I'm going to give you a little hint. Trusting in God doesn't mean everything's going to turn out okay. Because it sure didn't for David in Gath. But there's something even greater that God offers to us when we trust in him in the midst of our fear. And that's what I want to show you this morning, okay? So first, so how do we go about this task of replacing our fear with trust in the Lord? Well, the first thing that this text encourages us to do, I believe, is if you're going to replace it with something, the first thing you need to do is you need to turn from your fear. Look again at verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 56. David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, 
For man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In his book, Triumphing Over Sinful Fear, Puritan author John Flavel describes three types of fear. He says there's natural fear, there's sinful fear, and there's righteous fear. That would be the fear of the Lord. And most people who read Psalm 21 and then Psalm 56, they argue that David is experiencing in this psalm and in Psalm in 1 Samuel 21, he's experiencing natural fear. I mean, Saul is out to kill him. He's being seized by the king of Gath. I mean, who wouldn't fear for their life under those circumstances, right? However, I believe Psalm 56 challenges these categories of fear. In particular, this distinction that some want to make between natural and sinful fear. My question is, what's the difference? And how can you know the difference? And here's why why I say that. Everyone agrees the fear of the Lord is good and righteous fear. But I want you to pay careful attention. Notice what's going on in this psalm. We know from 1 Samuel 21 that David is being hunted for his life. Saul is out to kill him. He's being held captive by King Achish, and David is afraid. Both Psalm 56 and 1 Samuel 21 make this abundantly clear. Okay? But notice David's response to his fear. David does not say, oh, this is just natural fear, no big deal, and move on. Is that how David responds to his fear? No, notice carefully. David doesn't think that his fear is good and natural, but rather, David views his fear as something that he needs to turn away from. So when David experiences fear, the first thing he does is not take a nap in it. He doesn't say, oh, this is just fine natural fear for my life. No, he turns away from that fear and he turns away from it so he could then turn towards the Lord. And I want to argue, Christian, that we are to do the same. Why? Because as the rest of the biblical witness testifies, that which you fear, please hear me, you are commanded not to fear. We are repeatedly commanded in Scripture to turn from fear. So, Say you're like David and someone is out to kill you. Or better yet, let's do something a little bit more practical. I hope none of you experienced someone out to kill you. But another, something that could happen, let's say you're in a house and it catches on fire. I believe the Bible makes it clear that that which you fear when the house is on fire, you are commanded by God not to fear, which is the loss of your life. 
Think with me for a moment. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 25? He commands us, do not be anxious about your what? Your life. Or, what does Jesus say to the church in Revelation 2, 10? Jesus, when speaking to Christians who are starving to death and about to be executed, what does he say to them? He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Jesus commands these Christians who are starving and facing execution, he commands them, do not fear the terrible, awful death that awaits you. Indeed, what does Jesus say in Luke 12? I'm going to throw it up here on the screen, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not what? Fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Do not fear those who can kill the body. You know who that was for King David? That was Saul. That was King Achish. God is saying to David, David, do not fear Saul who can kill your life. Do not fear Achish who can kill your life. For us today, we could say, do not fear COVID that could take your life. Do not fear the car accident that could take your life. Do not fear anything that can kill you. An accident or tornado, a disease, cancer. Christ commands us, do not fear those that can kill the body. He goes on to say, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And this is just a sampling. What is Jesus commanding in these verses? He's commanding us not to fear those who could take our lives. Do not fear the loss of life. And notice how David's rhetorical question at the end of verse 4 echoes this teaching of Jesus. For what does he say there? David says, what can flesh do to me? One more. What does the author of Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 state? And Christian, I want to tell you, this is an absolute game changer for how we think about this. And one more thing, and this is just for free, okay? We are saturated in a culture that is giving us counsel about how we'd handle fear. Not only are we in a culture that is bringing fears to our minds, but it's constantly counseling us how we're to handle and cope with our fears. And what I'm trying to do this morning is to give us the biblical categories for how we're to handle fear. And it's radically different than anything you're going to hear outside of this book. But listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Christian, you need to understand this. Jesus came to deliver you from a lifelong fear of death. The author writes this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, referring to Jesus, he shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And then listen to this. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Christian Christ came 
to deliver you from a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. I wonder how many of us have returned to that fear during COVID? How many of us have made the fear of COVID taking away our life or something else we value our highest motivation for making decisions? What do we do? Where do we go? Who do we hang out with? Now, in light of Christ's commands, do these verses imply that we ought to live reckless lives? No. Do they mean we ought to just throw caution to the wind? Again, no. And am I saying that everyone who exercises caution during COVID is doing so out of a fear of dying? No. But it could be. As a preacher, I am bound to what Scripture says. And what these texts make abundantly clear is that we ought not to make the fear of dying our motivation for making decisions, especially during COVID. And again, let me say, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be cautious. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But we shouldn't make the fear of dying our highest motivation. Jesus not only explicitly commands us not to fear death, but the author of Hebrews makes it crystal clear that Christ came to deliver us from that fear. To return to such is slavery to sin. It's to return to Egypt. So why are we not to fear death? What's the good news we've been singing about all this morning? It's because our Savior has defeated death, amen? And not only has he defeated death, he's promised resurrection to all who are united to him by faith. You see, the reality is we all have something we should be scared out of our minds about. And that's the just condemnation we are owed for our sin. All of us come into this world justly condemned before God and the, the wrath we are owed for our sin for all eternity should scare us to death. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God hasn't left us condemned in our sin, but that he's chosen to have his son go to the cross to absorb the condemnation we are owed for our sin so that through faith in him, we become sons and daughters. And we have the promise of eternal life and resurrection, amen? The good news of the, of the gospel is that on the cross of Christ, Jesus received the full wrath of God for those who put their trust in him. So Christian, for those of you here this morning who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we are not to fear death because our Savior has conquered the grave, Amen? So, if we are commanded not to fear death, then why should we not ride our bikes down the middle of the road? Why should I wear a helmet when I play hockey? Why should I look both ways when I cross the street? Why should you go into your basement when the tornado alarm goes off? Why should we do these things? Well, David tells us. 
Look at verses 12 through 13. He says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render think offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. I must perform my vows. Why? Because he has redeemed him. I have a friend uh, who used to fly planes for the military. And he recently shared with me that the military could prosecute him if he got sunburnt on his shoulders. Because that meant he couldn't wear his parachute and fly the plane. So think about that. If his shoulders got too sunburnt, the military could prosecute him. You know why? Because he was owned by the military. He was not free to do whatever he wanted. No, because he was owned by the military, they could tell him what he could and couldn't do. In fact, a lot of his friends, they could vacation in Mexico, but he could not. The military forbid him because the risk was too high for him to get sunburnt. Because he was owned by the military, he was obligated to fulfill his tasks, even at a cost to him. Why must David fulfill his vows to God? Why must he live a life of obedience to God and his word? Because as one who's been redeemed, he's owned by God. He's been redeemed by the Lord. And notice, David is saying this while he is still in Gath. So you know what that means? The deliverance David is speaking of here, it's not a physical deliverance, is it? No, he's speaking of spiritual deliverance. Spiritual deliverance of his soul. That's why he can stand and walk before God. Because his sins have been forgiven. He's been redeemed. Christian, why ought you look both ways when crossing the street? Why ought you wear a hockey helmet? Why ought you exercise caution? Because you are owned by God. And here's the second action we must follow if we're to replace our fear with trust. We must embrace that God owns you. This, this is our chief motivation. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He says, You are not your own. You Christian here this morning, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So let's go back to the house fire scenario once more, okay? You're in a, I pray this never happens to you, but you're in a, a house and it's on fire and the ceiling's falling in. Why should you leave? Well, the first thing you should probably do is find out if there's anyone else in the body, in the, in the building who needs help. But then why should you leave? What should your motivation be? It should not be that you fear death. Why? Christ tells us multiple times in the New Testament, do not fear that which can kill your body. So what should your motivation be? It should be Christian. 
because God owns your life and you need to serve him today and every day after that for all eternity. My motivation isn't to preserve my life. No, my motivation is to live for him who died and rose again on my behalf. Therefore, I'm going to exercise wisdom. I'm going to exercise discernment. I'm going to be wise in how I live my life so I can continue to serve my Lord faithfully so I can fulfill my vows, as David says. And this isn't the only place where this is taught. I mean, think of 2 Corinthians 5.15. We are no longer to live for ourselves, for the preservation of our lives, but for Christ. That's your starting point, Christian. So Christian, please hear me. You are not free. And I say this with the greatest love and empathy as your pastor. Please hear me. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are bound to what God's word commands of you. This means we are not to fear death. That's not to be our chief motivation. And it also means we're not to live reckless lives, but prudent lives according to the wisdom of God's word so we might faithfully serve and honor him. And I just want, also just for a moment, I just want to touch touch on something. As we come together in two services in a a couple weeks, we we have some of our brothers and sisters in the Lord who choose to wear masks who choose to be more cautious because they believe this. And as as we all seek to work this out in our own lives, how it best makes sense, let us give charity and deference and preference to one another. Even though we might land on different conclusions, let us not question motive, but pray and encourage that everyone is doing it from the same heart. few more things I want to say here. I just want to drill down a couple more things. This truth that you are owned by God. And I want to just speak to the married couples here. I'm, I'm going to do some preemptive marriage counseling. Okay? Christian couple, no matter how hard or difficult your marriage might be, you are bound to what God's word commands of you. You are called to live for Christ and not yourself in your marriage. Even if your spouse doesn't love you in return. Even if your spouse is vengeful and hateful towards you, you under the authority of God's word and by him redeeming you with the blood of his son Your life is not your own. And he has promised that he will give you the grace and the strength necessary to fulfill your vows. You are called to live for Christ and not yourself in your marriage. The reason is because you're bought with a price 
And the good news is he gives you his spirit and his grace to enable you to do that. There, that again is for free. So finally, I want to just talk for a moment. What does it practically mean to, to trust God? We're, we're in the process of replacing it. So replacing it means we turn from the fear. We have to embrace the notion and the truth <clears throat> that God owns us. And then this is what I think David is getting at when he says trust in God. What he's really saying is this, and that is you must rely on God's word. Look again at verses 8 through 13, or 8 through 11. He says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. And Christian, we know that God is for us because of what he's done for us in Jesus. Verse 10, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I want you to notice the change in emotions in David here in this psalm. He goes from despair, desperation, lamenting, to all of a sudden, praise. And the question we need to ask is, what changed David's trajectory? How did he go from desperation, crying out, to now all of a sudden, he's exalting and praising? Well, I want to argue, it's because he had a vision of who God is and his word. Notice first what David says about God's character in verse 8. David turns to God because he's a God who cares. What a comfort these verses are. Christian, God is aware of the struggle and concerns of your life. And not only is he aware of that, but he cares for you. But here's something that we have to understand. Please hear me, Christian. What we have to understand is that God's chief concern for you isn't relief from your difficult or fearful circumstances, but it's redemption from your sin through the difficult circumstance. God's chief concern isn't relief for you but redemption for you. And he's using the difficult circumstance to deliver you from your sin. God's goal for you is to make you more like his son. And if we would embrace this, oh, the happy we would be. And I must confess, I fail at this. And this is why I need Jesus. But in the moments when God in his kindness has helped me understand that this difficult circumstance or stressful situation or whatever it might be, when God in his kindness brings to mind and the Holy Spirit convicts my heart that Aaron, God is using this to redeem you from your self-centered sin that still remains. It changes my perspective on whatever it is I'm going through. And then God begins to come into my thoughts. And I pray that 
I begin to do what James 1 wants me to do, is to allow this difficulty produce steadfastness in me. But I, friend, I, I tell you this as one who's on the journey with you, not as one who's arrived. And this is why we need one another to encourage one another in this. To really believe that God's goal for us is to make us more like his son. Well then second, notice what does David praise? He couldn't be more obvious there in verse 10. And what does David praise? It is God's word. Friend, David's trust in God is not a trust that everything's going to turn out okay. He's not sitting there with spittle running down his beard in handcuffs, seized by the Philistines and Gath, and like, when I am afraid I'm going to trust in you, God, and I'm going to trust you, you're just going to work all this out, and I'm going to be out of here in no time. That's not what he means when he trusts in God. When David says he's trusting God, he's not trusting that God is going to make everything work out for him the way he would like. That is not what David is saying, and we ought not to do the same. No. David is trusting that God is going to act in accordance to his character as revealed in Scripture. In God whose word I praise, he's trusting how God has revealed himself, the character that he's been revealed in his word. So let me give you one example for us. Consider what we read in Psalm 34.10. Let's actually, let's say this verse out loud together. Ready? The young lions suffer want in hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good. You know who that is? Those who seek the Lord? That's you, Christian. That's you who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. You, as a follower of Christ, you're seeking the Lord. And what does God's word say about those who seek the Lord? They lack what? No good thing. Now, if I trusted this verse, if I relied on this verse the way I see David in this psalm relying on God's word, do you know what that means? It means I would do what God calls me to do, and then whatever it is I don't have, I would believe by faith it's because God has determined it's not good for me. Why? Because God says those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He will give me what is best for me. Think for a moment about how this truth speaks to our fears. If I, like David, place my praise in God's word, if I believe it like I ought, then when I don't get what I want, I should not fear but rest knowing that I didn't get it because God determined it wasn't for my good. Or, if God took something away from me, I should not see it as my worst fears coming to pass, but as God's gracious hand working for my good. This is radical. But this is God's counsel to his people on how we are to think about fear and handle the fear. The moments like David, when I am afraid. 
If we rely on God's word, God's word says those who seek the Lord lack no good thing, which means God is only going to give us that which is for our good. The dissonance is our understanding of what we think is good for us is sometimes different than what God thinks is good for us. And you know what brings them together? Is faith in God's character that he is good and that he is right and my understanding of what I think in good is right for me is limited and flawed. And that takes humility. Faith, I don't know what next week might hold for you or for me. I don't. But what I do know is that God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And whatever circumstances might come our way, we are not to fear but continually entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Let's pray.